Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning. I hope everyone's having a wonderful Tuesday. My name is Frank Zakari, and you are listening to Life-Altering Events on the VoiceAmerica.com Empowerment Channel. Now, since we started this show about a month, two months ago now, a lot of people have asked me, Frank, what exactly is a life-altering event? And this is what I tell them. A life-altering event is something we either choose or something that is thrust upon us that drastically alters the trajectory of our life. A life-altering events present us with, however, is opportunities to seize the moment and make a difference in our life and in the lives of our loved ones. Now, if they're, they're also a fork in the road, and we have a choice. We can choose to fall apart, or we can choose to find the courage, pick up the pieces, deal with our grief, and start moving forward toward better times and better people. I say this every week. It's never too late to have the life that you want and you deserve. As you listen to this show over the coming weeks and months and hopefully years, I urge you to think about participating in an upcoming show. If you have a life-altering event that could inspire others, visit the life-altering event page at voiceamerica.com, click on email the host, and tell me about this event that so drastically altered your life, how you addressed it, where you are now, and how it has impacted your life. We'll review it for content, and if it fits well into the program, we'll contact you about using it in a future broadcast. Now, the show was recently renewed for 52 more weeks, so thank you to all you people around the world who keep listening. But now, I need to hear from you. I need to hear your story so I can tell your story to the world. Today, what we're going to talk about is the importance of recognition and inclusion. Okay, I want you to think about a time when you were about to start a new job. Okay, think back to that. Like most people, I'm sure you were very excited and a little bit nervous. You walked in that first day, you know, full of anticipation, ready to bring value to whatever organization that had just hired you. You were told about the company's training program and how it would prepare you to be succeed in whatever this new role was. Then reality happened. You arrived at work. No one seemed to know you were coming. Someone finally came up to welcome you. And this person gave you the W-4 to complete for taxes and some forms for payroll and the emergency contact and the link to how to get to your benefits. The next step, more likely, was the nickel tour of the facility, and then the person took you to your desk and said, well, here's your desk. You opened up the drawers. There were no supplies waiting for you, which is a little disappointing. A few minutes later, your boss or supervisor arrives with a set of books, drops them on your desk and says, here's your training manual. Go through these. Everything you need to know to do this job is in these manuals. Once you get through them, let me know when you're done, and we can discuss any kind of questions that you may have. Now, do you think this reception was underwhelming? I've been through these. Yes, they are. Your head was probably spinning. I bet you thought, oh, my God, what did I do? This is a major mistake. Is it too late to go back to my old company? So you plowed through the manuals, 90% of which you won't remember. Is this all sounding familiar? Did you get the feeling that you were being recognized and included within this company? Now, I can feel some of you laughing out there. Okay, admit it, you're laughing. You've had this experience at least once, maybe more. As ridiculous as this sounds, it happens far too often to far too many large and small organizations. The culture in these organizations is we throw you into the ocean during a hurricane, and if you survive, well, then we'll take the next step. I've worked for organizations where seven out of 10 new employees leave within six months. 
yet they continue to follow this horrible practice, these procedures. Now, why are they doing this? One answer that I keep hearing is, well, this is how it was when I started and I turned out okay. Yet when you ask these very same organizations, they will say to you, our number one asset is our people. Now, when you received a greeting like that, did you feel like an important asset? I don't think so. Well, fortunately, there are people like my guest, Sam Otterwell. And Sam is a consummate professional in uh, human resources, or what I would like to call human capital. He has 25 years of hand-on experience and and has earned the reputation of just getting the job done, building the right culture. He has demonstrated when properly designed, developed, and trained, human resources is a component that makes a company to, that allows a company to operate as smoothly and efficiently as possible by making people feel recognized and included. Okay, he doesn't just talk the talk. In 2013, Sam won Best HR Practice for his work with two federally qualified healthcare centers, and he went through one of the sturdiest federal audits performed by the Health Resources and Services Administration and, and, and Services. HRSA, for those of you who are into acronyms. In 2005 and 2006, Sam guided his team, his organizations to win the best place to work in the San Francisco North Bay Business Journal. Now, if you're not familiar with San Francisco, the North Bay has hundreds, if if not thousands of organizations, yet two years running, Sam won the best place to work. That says something. This year, Sam authored and published a book called On the Edge of Effectiveness, Refocusing HR Efforts to Strengthen Organizations. Okay, Sam, welcome to Life Altering Events. We're so glad you're here. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here. Sam, I've heard you say far too many organizations look at training and they use, the, they use a fire hose model and then they wonder why they fail. What do you suggest when you walk into an organization that does this? You know, the first thing I remember, you talk about that nickel tour. I've been on that nickel tour. And I've been on that process where why which a, an employee comes in the room and basically they're given the, here's, here's where your desk is, here's where the restroom is, here's where their place is, and here's a manual, go to work. And in some places today that still exists, unfortunately. Fortunately, and unfortunately, unfortunately, we have moved on a bit from quite a bit from a long time ago. Um, you know, that used to be called the orientation. Now the orientation has kind of changed a lot more where they're engaging employees, you know, about the company, about their mission, about their purpose. You know, and you're right about that. The training part, what I've seen, and this is something I have said many times, they brought in people and they basically gave them everybody in the room and they said, you know what, here's the training, go to work. And if you think about it, for example, you take a customer service job, it sounds like it's an easy job that anybody can do. And it should be a training that, well, if there's one customer service in one organization, in one industry, should serve another. The answer to that, that's not true. For that reason, a lot of companies have had a lot of problems with their customer service employees because not all trainings are alike. Not They're not all equated alike. What I also recommend, whether it's a small company or a large company, is to be engaged in your training. Know exactly what you want and be very strategic in what you want to do with your training. If it is customer service, then be, know exactly what you expect your customer service people to do and so on. Engage them and also recognize their their performance and recognize their ability to when they do very well. But above all, have a kind of an idea what the outcome should be like. What is your people going to be trained like? What, what, is it, what do I expect my people to be like in the, in the workforce? And generally speaking, you have that outcome, then you have a vision of what you want to really want to do. And above all, keep some sort of metrics. You want to keep track to see how well you actually track these results and so on. And never forget, always recognize that people that are doing well and excel in these jobs because the more recognition they receive, the better that they do in their jobs. And it's really simple. It's just be, be engaged, be specific, and be strategic in your training. One of the things I read in your book, Sam, you were talking about 
people learn when you you give them small bites of training and then reinforce quarterly, semi-annually, more than just once a year. Mm-hmm. How did you set that up when you walk into an organization and they say, no, nah, no, nah, we, don't, we don't do that? Well, you think about it. I mean, you know, if whether you went to college or whether you, you've done anything in your lifetime, whatever you've been trained on, once you've done something, you learn something, it's not done yet. You've learned it, but you have to reinforce it. And doing so, the reinforcement part is allowed to know whether you really, really grasp the, the material or not, or even strengthen the material. If you've grasped it the first time, then reinforcement is just going to strengthen your, your, your you know, the, the material. I still do it for myself. You know, there's things that I've learned years ago, and I basically will go back to it and learn the fundamentals again because it only strengthen it. In, in, the, in the business world, and whether it's, whether it's government, whether nonprofit or business world, when you implement a training, whether it's a very elaborate training, you should have and you should create a reinforcement session. It doesn't necessarily have to be as lengthy, but something somewhat of a kind of a summary of what you have learned to help you reinforce those, those main points of training. So if you're training, let's say, to be a welder as an example, well, you know, you've, you've learned all the intricates. The summary, the reinforcement should be kind of a summary, kind of a bullet point, allow you to do something like that and maybe take a, like a, a little, little exam or a little checklist, whether it's online or just on, on paper, just to do so, just to keep reinforcing that. You do that annually, then you're actually kept up on the materials. And of course, and your people are very much kept up on, their, on, the, you know, on the materials, of course. Right. Many times... In the, in the world you came from, uh, perception becomes reality. Now, I can recall in my early corporate life, n- many years ago, the perception of HR was, it was called the personnel department. And there was this basic idea that there were paper pushers and barriers to progress. And I, I can't tell you, Sam, how many executives I heard say, I don't need HR meddling into what the heck I'm doing. How did you change that perspective? You were the best place in Northern North Bay for two consecutive years. How did you do that? Yeah, well, in, I went basically back to fundamentals. Let's start with that one. But let me go back and, and say that I've heard that before. Many, many organizations have said the same thing. Many organizations have come in when they usually have no problems, everything is going okay. We don't need HR. Once problems hit, whether it be employee conflict resolutions or, or terminations or those things, now you need somebody much more sophisticated when it comes to, you know, uh, knowing those knowledge. Part of the reason is because, well, you make the mistakes while well, you, you are, you're in litigation. That's, that's number one. But the other thing, too, is we have evolved. I mean, you know, HR has evolved from personnel to HR. You know, there's a, many organizations recognize that, Yes, people are the driving force of success, no matter, no matter what the industry is. At the end of the day, people are the driving force of success. Doing so, that means you really have to make sure that you empower those individuals to do what they do best. In the organizations I came in, when they had so-called broken departments and broken messes, because really, they lost sight of that fundamental goal, and that is... Basically, in HR, we are a support group to support them to do their job the best they can. And one main thing that they've lost is that customer service that we give to employees, make sure that they were there for them and we're sure that we basically serve them, but not just them, but also the leadership as well. We create a partnership with leadership to make sure that help them continue their work as well as they can, help them achieve their goals whether it be better recruitment, better training, and so on, but that's where our job comes in. And so we become a lot more partner with organizations to help them go through that. And really, that is the kind of what took me from one broken system to another one, is that we basically went back and we did the fundamentals. And, and once you have the fundamentals arrived, then everything kind of starts to fall in places and, and pretty soon to move forward into to a much more successful organization. I see in, in your book, you had a, a picture of a graph, which I thought was intriguing. And it said, you have customer service, mitigate risk, conflict resolution, and long-term planning. Not everybody thinks of HR in that way. Correct. So most people think, as you said, HR, we are basically paper pushers and so on. But the life cycle of the HR department is a lot more complicated than that. 
And that diagram that I put in the book is basically, number one, you have to do the customer service, of course. Two, we have to mitigate risk. Make sure that we are protecting the organization from lawsuits or anything else of that nature. Of course, the stronger the organization, the better for the employees and better for the customers of the organization as well. Three, you want to make sure that we resolve conflict as fast as we can. Human beings exist, conflict's going to arise, and we have to resolve those things quickly, fast, and effectively, and fairly. You may have a union, you may not have a union, there's still the conflicts do arise, and all those things that we have to be involved in to make sure those are resolution. Lastly, you want to make sure that you have some sort of long-term planning that is basically is your long-term planning of the HR department, you're tying it to the organization's goals, the future goals. So the organization, for example, is out to expand or do more then the, the, the planning of the department should be tailored to that, also to the strategic goal of the organization. So that's really the kind of the life cycle of basically HR from day-to-day basis. I mean, you're really dealing with all facets, and that's from a broader sense as well. Good. Well, this, this segment went by very quickly. We're up against the break here, so we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Sam. We're going to continue showing how inclusion and recognition make a difference in your job, and in your life. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we are back. Thank you for staying with us. We are having an enlightening conversation here with Sam Alderwell uh, based on uh, human resources and the importance of recognition and inclusion in people's lives and in people's businesses. Now, uh, just before the break, Sam was talking about the life cycle in human resources. Now, one of the things that have happened over the year, years, Sam, we went from personnel department to human resources, and now we're over to human capital. Why should human capital be part of the C-level management, and what, what strengths does that bring to the overall organization? 
Great question. It actually is something that, again, is part of that evolution process that I mentioned earlier about human resources and how it came along. The driving force of success, we know, is human beings. If you look at it right now, the, one of the things that are going on today's time, they're, they're looking for skilled workers constantly, skilled workers, skilled workers. You have people that are such, when they're excellent at what they do, companies are fighting for them, and they're setting their own price you know, the salary, so to speak. So talent is the key to basically success of the organization. We know that. And so when you're on the, why, does, why should HR be in the C-level? For the same reason why finance is in the C-level, because it's one of the reasons that a CEO would have to have to, in order to basically move the organization forward. You have to have uh, strategies, people strategies as far as recruitment, as far as training, as far as what type of where we're going tomorrow, and you need HR on the C level to basically, you know, help with that strategic goal. You know, you have finance, of course, department, and finance is uh, making sure the organization is not only thriving financially, making sure they're not we're not overspending and doing the things necessary we're doing, and hopefully that we're planning ahead. But again, when you're thinking about people. People are the ones that are really going to be the driving force. And, and sometimes we were talking about some key positions that, that may affect the whole operations. So that level, you really, really need to do, you need to have a C-level HR. But not to mention, as time is changing today, one of the biggest costs of going on is health care. Health care is basically, I mean, the health insurance is, is rising and, and benefits are rising and keeping track of all that and making sure that we're getting the best for the employees, and that's going to have to be HR, and that's the HR's job. And doing so, they have to, of course, strategize with, with the rest of the team, work with, directly with the CFO, the CEO, and to make things happen you know, better. And so it, throughout life, it has evolved throughout you know, our years. It has evolved to basically being a partner to the C-suite. And that becomes such a huge environment because as we hear so much about the, the diversity and I have worked, I was working recently with a bank, a large bank, and the, the CEO had said, you know, Frank, I sit in a meeting and I wonder why we're not getting anything accomplished. Then I realize everybody in the room, we went to the same school, we, have, <laughs> we belong to the same organization, we go to the same country club, we think the same thoughts. It's no wonder we're not getting anywhere. Talk about HR's role in bringing diversity and, and that new innovative thinking into organizations. Well, it's, it's, it's a good question. It really is because, I mean, it's, a, it's not an easy task to do. First of all, the fact that you have a CEO that recognizes that, that's fantastic. Usually that usually you don't see that until somebody in HR actually brings that up to, to basically, you know, forward. And that's one of the things that we do in HR. We advise and we give, we give feedback. And we do, we try to be as diverse as possible, but not just for the sake of legality reasons, but for the sake of practical reasons. And you're absolutely right about that. You know, talent, if you bring in talent to an organization, you need a diverse talent and a different point of views. When you look at things that are companies that are successful and you look at their C-suite or look at their you know, middle management and so on, nobody look alike, nobody came from the same area, and nobody does everything else. But they do have a common goal, and their common goal is to thrive that organization. And they bring in different talent, whether it's technical, whether it's, it's, you know, it's other things that they bring in. Um, one of the things I think organizations have become a little bit smarter with recruitment and they've learned that smart ones lately that we need to go outside the scope of, of our backyard. In other words, many of them say, you'll just see a lot of them say, we want local candidates only, okay, because that way it's, it's, it's cheaper for them. Well, it's kind of an old saying, you, you get what you pay for. You know, sometimes the talent is not in your backyard. Sometimes the talent is elsewhere, and you have to be willing to go out there and get that talent. If the talent happened to be, in, for example, in New York and you're in California, by all means, then, then make that work. And, but if you're getting a lot of talent in your area, that's fantastic. But usually, you have to kind of go out the scope and think outside the box. The, I think, you know, I understand how the CEO thinks. I mean, you, you know, when part of that is the recruitment process. 
the recruitment process has been the same. You know, we bring in people from here, this think that way, have that way, and think in our own culture. But they have to kind of, to change that, they have to go outside the box of that and think outside that what they've done normally in the past and, and try and think outside the box as far as recruitment concern. I've heard you say, Sam, that a big part of, of turning an organization is training the executive level on how to collaborate, on how to have dialogue rather than discussion. With, and because the young people coming in, younger people coming in, this is how they, this is how they live. This is how they operate in a collaborative mm-hmm. manner. What are some of the challenges of doing that? Wow. Uh, lots of it. Um, it. It really is a lot of challenging because you really have, this is the difference I say when you see organizations really thrive and organizations that are stuck and in, in, in limbo, so to speak. Um, part of it is the open-mindedness. Um, there have been a lot of, it's also kind of a mandatorial style that way. It's, it's since I'm in a C-suite, what, what, you know, my word is gold and that's it. Or having the fact that, you know, don't challenge me in my, what I'm, on my approach. That hasn't really served the organization very well, and I'll be honest with you. You know, the successful ones have been really embraced conversation, embraced talking to see how we can improve things. In many ways, you know, they're actually, you know, the strategies are coming from bottom up rather than top to bottom and looking at their talent within the side. I'll give you an example. Years ago, they finally discovered this as things with safety. Um, for the longest time, you know, they had... Organized like manufacturing construction, they you know they had safety problems of course, so they developed safety committees. But the safety committees, who is best to be on there if not employees and some supervisors on there in the committee? Because they're there on the floor, they can see everything. You're not going to get top level people dictating what safety should be because they don't they're not there to see it. So things like that, the kind of those safety committees have empowered individuals to do very take take interest in the organization, take interest in the safety of the organization for the better, and many of them, and those things have helped quite often, quite a bit. But a lot of CEOs, I think the challenge when, when I face them is the fact that it comes down to personality, and usually some who are very open-minded and, and really to have that conversation with others and, and, and hear people from, from different point of views and see, can we try that? Why not try something like that? And, uh, and that, that's the ones who are succeeding. They're also the ones that are setting the culture. The culture is usually set by the top level. And at the top level, basically, are open to discussions and open-minded being this, then the organization is going to show. And that's also going to change in the, way you, in the way how it is, whether it's a great place to work or not. Setting a culture is another one as well. One of the uh, examples that I that just blows my mind is um, uh, Starbucks talking about this bottom up, mm-hmm. and Starbucks, the Frappuccino product line, mm-hmm. didn't did not exist in the beginning, and it it, it was down in Santa Monica, California, at a Starbucks, mm-hmm. and it was getting summer, and things weren't going as well. So the guy brought in his own blender against it wasn't part of policy, it wasn't best mm-hmm. practice. Correct. Brought in his blender, put it together started putting it out as samples, and the people loved it. Correct. And to Starbucks' credit, the management said, wow, this is interesting. And I love the point you made, Sam, and I'd like you to elaborate on it, that most innovation does not come from the boardroom. It comes it from the field. It does not. It absolutely does not. Because you, working in manufacturing, I've seen some really innovative work came out of individuals. And some of the stuff that came out of there is just being creative and how to use the machinery and how to use in products and so on. And fortunately, some of the supervisor manager took notice to it and brought it to a higher level to them to see. And they say, look, we have this thing. We're doing this thing here. We're saving not only time, money, but we're doing a better product. And the organization to, you know, took it and used it. Um, Starbucks is one of them. In fact, Starbucks have been... And years ago, there was another incident where basically they bought the Clover machine from somebody. This person made this machine called Clover. It makes coffee. makes mm-hmm. great coffee. And he walked in the Starbucks. He walked in, tasted it. Not only he basically bought the Clover, the, obviously the patent of it, he also hired the gentleman to work in Starbucks as well. 
And that's something, that's what you, that was the kind of risk you take to succeed. But you always look for talent within the side. I mean, many organizations want to hire talent to bring outside, but they forget to look at talent within the side and say, hey, how are we, how is our people doing this thing here? You know, could we challenge our people to be innovative? And that's something that some organizations have started doing, challenging their people to be innovative and, and give them some sort of incentive to do so. And so they're getting that talent within inside and not just going out there and hire somebody right off the bat. It's, it, this, is, this is a very interesting topic here because mm-hmm. one of the things that I see uh, in, in my role is organizations who drill down and they say, we have a best practice and this is the best practice and we're going to stay with this best practice. And many of them no longer exist anymore. Western Electric is a great <laughs> example. AMP is another great example. Kodak. Kodak, Kodak, even another one. When when you come into these organizations like this, how do you address these people that best practice is a point in time? It's not religion. The, the numbers usually show that. And usually well, the numbers will show that. Once you see the numbers, it really shows where, it, it, is it really best practice or is it just we've been doing the same old, same old and getting the same thing? And the failed... One failed um, manufacturing that I was around with, it was they, they, they just, during the time those things were started going bad, they could not, the C-suite could not do anything except do the same thing over and over, and the shimp just sank, basically. And, of course, it happened during uh, you know, the worst times, which is the 2009 economy, but they didn't consider, you know, they didn't have that forethought of saying, okay, you know what, what happened if this doesn't work tomorrow? What, are, what is our backup plan for this? And so when you come into an organization, and from an HR perspective, when I come into an organization and I see stagnation, I, I basically, you know, show by numbers, show that we were kind of failing in, in areas, and see, basically, say, make recommendations. Some will take the recommendations. Others will say, fine, but we don't have the money for it now, and then never do it. And those organizations, I could tell you right now, they, they, they're just or just bound to go into the abyss sooner or later. A lot of times, and I'm not saying that every recommendation I give, everybody should jump on, but you should consider that. You should consider new innovation, especially since if you're on the path and you're not moving forward, you're not moving up, then you really have to evaluate that. And evaluation of your work and your constant you know, finance is something important. And I think right now, Probably, like you said, some of these organizations who said we have best practice, I wonder during that time when they failed, did they really stop in the mid- middle of them and say, okay, our best practice is just not going anywhere. I wonder. And so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That That is something that I hear over and over again. And the... Uh, and it makes me laugh, Sam. Is it the best practice? Is every time an MBA graduates, there's a new best practice. So, <laughs> come on, guys, <laughs> let's stay with it. Well, we're up against another break here. This is this is, show is going very rapidly. Great conversation. So don't go away. We're going to continue with this conversation, and we're going to get into how human resources helps mitigate risk, and how people confuse contingency with succession, and many organizations fail to do that. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Frank Sakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. 
That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. You're listening to Life Altering Events on the Voice America empowerment channel and we are having a fantastic conversation with sam alderwell who is an expert in human resources and is a author of of, of the book on the edge of effectiveness refocusing hr efforts to strengthen organizations i have read this book if you are in any kind of a leadership position get it i strongly recommend you buy this book and read it now sam we were talking before about uh, cultures and mm-hmm. we're into best practices. Now, one of the things I've heard you say is hire character and teach skills. Correct. What do you mean by that, and how do you implement that? There are. Let's go back to that uh, customer service, you know, example that what I gave earlier. Mm-hmm. I can. You can teach customer service practically to anybody, and anybody can be friendly. Anybody can be could be nice and could be this. But to get the right personality and the right behavior person who's empathetic or understanding, has patience and so on, those will show during the interview process. You, you know, you want to take somebody that actually, if you're serving an organization, if you're going to be in a service of any sort of, like say, for example, if I hire somebody on my staff and that person's going to do customer service for the employees and leadership, not only I want that person to be empathetic, to be a good listener, to actually be, you know, to to have some sort of a, you know, human, human, good human interaction, good communication skills, friendly, and so on. But those are the really important behaviors because that's what you're, that's what you're presenting to the customer. That's what you're presenting to the, to the other side. Now, the skill levels, for example, technical skill levels, or perhaps it's HR, which could be very technical. That stuff you can teach, but you cannot teach sometimes somebody who is very good at human interactions, great at that, especially if the job calls for it. So sometimes you really have to see what the job calls for. If a job is somebody who is basically a technical writer, as an example, you may not need that. You may need somebody who is very technical and so on, but the person should have obviously some really good, excellent communication skills with, with writing emails and so on and be very, very elaborate. But when the job calls for human interactions, Look for those things that basically says, okay, what do I expect from my, that person to do from a human side? How do I expect that person to interact with employees or leadership or others? And so if they're lacking in certain, let's say, certain things in the technical skills, well, I can teach that. They can learn that. That's not really that difficult. And if even if it takes them a little longer than usual, that's okay. Because that right there is more important to me and how that person's in because how the other side is going to interpret it is, is much more important to me. Because to me, if the customer interprets it, whether it's an employee or leadership says, they're going to come back to me and say, I really, really like this person a lot. They really helped me. They listened to me. They did everything else they can, even though they didn't know this, but they're very sympathetic and they, they tend to be, you know, very happy. And at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. When we look at characteristics, if, if someone, those are integral to the individual. Do they have integrity? Mm-hmm. Do they have grit? Are they persistent? Mm-hmm. Do they care? Correct. Okay. 
that you either have those or you don't. The, the skills, as you mentioned, we can teach you the skills. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. Excellent point. Um, in your book, you talk about mitigating risks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I worked, I came from the high tech sector, from high end, big companies and small companies. And I can't tell you how many people are scared to death of an employee <laughs> lawsuit. Okay. And they bend their rules. How do you protect an organization? What's the best way to protect yourself against a lawsuit? You know, the first, yeah, the first thing you got to obviously you do is you become compliant with your, with your processes. I mean, you want to make sure that your, your processes are compliant. That means from the hiring to the termination, all of it has to be compliant when it comes to employee. Because a lot of, lot of litigation happens because of wrongful terminations of things like that or that, that type of things. And if it's a union environment, then you're going to do a lot of with arbitration because you're going to do a lot of that. So there is a lot of that going on. You want to be compliant. And what I mean by that, make sure you're up to date on some of the laws. Perfect example. If you have a company, let's say in Minnesota, and you have a place in California, just understand that both of those laws differ. California tend to be much more stringent in certain areas. So you want to make sure that you follow the proper state law when it comes to those type of issues, like from hiring to, to termination. And uh, I'll give you an example. Um, recently, I saw a friend of mine call me up. She said she's applying for a job, and they're asking her for an okay if they do a background check. And if, and if she doesn't say okay, then they will kick her off. Now, that's, that's a violation of law because they, companies cannot do a pri- uh, background check until she's given an offer. And usually it's a contingent offer that upon you passing your background, you are fully hired. And the reason for that is because if they do a background check on this person, well, they're going to discover personal things, age, marital status, etc. Those things you're not, companies do not need to know prior to employment. They don't need to know that. So some companies still doing that. I'm like, really? Today's time? Kind of, you got to get with it on that one. Those are the kind of like the basics right there. Now, the most important thing that I see companies do and do wrong, or not I see companies where they lose arbitration, or the companies do lose lawsuits, is because they're not consistent with applying their policies. When you have a policy and you apply for one, you got to apply it for all. So in other words, if you're going to terminate somebody for doing something naughty, then you make sure that the other person you happen to like and do the same thing, got to be terminated for the same thing. So you can't just make policies one for one and the other because usually that what happens is that that comes up in litigation and that will bite you. And then usually companies will bite them every time. If you apply the policy differently for one and the other, it's wrong. And if you apply the policy whenever you want to, it's wrong. In other words, we had this incident where we lost the arbitration because they tried to hold the person accountable for attendance. But then they took their eyes off the ball for a long time, but they came back to try to hold her for attendance again. Well, you can't do that. You have to be consistent in your policy practice. That way, it doesn't show any sort of biases whatsoever. One thing that I saw in, in many companies, and you and I have had this conversation, is they, there's, they confuse contingency with succession. And then the leader moves on and the poor organization falls apart. That's true. And that usually falls into the long-term planning. Absolutely. And the long-term planning of the organization, and if you think about it, and you have succession planning. Succession planning is designed for long-term planning, and that is usually, you know, what, how do we continue this organization in long-term? So let's say it's a healthcare organization and we want to continue this great mission they have, who's going to be the next CEO, CFO, you know, they plan ahead. And that takes, it's a lot of elaborate plan. But there's also this thing called emergency succession planning, or in my case, I call it contingency planning, because what happens if tomorrow the CEO decides to leave on a whim, or the CFO, or any position, or anybody with a key position that affects the operations, and you have no backup for that person? Well, the organization falls. At least it'll be, it'll be damaged for a short term. And so one of the most important thing is identifying key positions that affect the operations of the organization. It could be from somewhere, it could be at a lower level, it could be at a higher level, it doesn't matter. 
But once you identify these positions that, for example, if let's say you have one payroll person doing payroll and you don't have a backup for that person, that person gets sick, you need to get payroll out. What are you going to do? So you have to have those contingencies into a backup for these individuals. And really, it's, just, it's kind of common sense, but unfortunately, it's just not practiced as much because many times they say, well, that requires training, it requires additional hiring, it requires this. But on the other hand, if that person leaves you know, in a short term without notice, then you've got a bigger problem. And so those contingencies are very important that you want to make sure that those positions that affect operations have a backup for them. I see. I have seen in, in my life uh, so many times I did turnarounds of failing organizations for many, many years. And you, you, it's that unexpected. You can plan for the expected. We had one of the top producers died in a car accident. Oh, my God. Okay. How do you plan for that? <laughs> you don't. So you better have a contingency plan in place as to, we used to do this what if all the time. Well, what if this happens? So what if that happens? Uh, the military is, is particularly good at this, the, the, the what-if things and the contingencies. One of the most intriguing parts of your book is Chapter 4. You talk about the four-fundamental approach, FFA, to design leadership training. Could you touch base on that in the, I think, five minutes or so we have left here? <laughs> so, yes, I, I can. And, and we'll do the, I'll do the best I can in five minutes. So basically, I created this thing is to it's a guideline for creating a foundation for designing leadership training for all levels of management. And what I mean about all levels of management, meaning that if you're a supervisor and you're managing one person, you're a leader. Okay, let's remember that one thing. And so there is one of the reasons I created this because we've had I've had in the past many different people have gone through leadership training or been promoted, and so on. Well, they may have one thing. For example, let's say they've had a technical skill for a long time. They're, they're promoted to be a manager or a leader or some sort of lead in leadership, but yet they have no human skills whatsoever. And what ends up happening is, of course, the person fails. Or they may have the human side, but they don't have the real technical side to make proper decisions. And the other side of it is they don't have the business attributes. They don't understand the industry they're in. They don't understand how the budgeting works. All those things. The reason why I created this is because I wanted to make sure that when you're creating a training for the organization. You want to make sure you hit off on all these four categories, and that is the human skills, that is business attributes, technical skills, and above all, ethical conduct You know, in, in your work. Those things alone, the foundation of that, if you start with the leadership training with those four ideas, then you'll, then you'll have created a well-rounded leader for, for basically organizations, whether it be in government, whether it be in in business or whether it be a nonprofit. One of the points you made in that section was the most difficult person to promote is someone who's an individual contributor into a supervisory role. How do you advise people to do that? You know, it's really, it's hard because you've taken somebody from staff to supervisor. And there hasn't been a lot of training on that one because really in the past they've said, you know what? You're supervising one person. There you go. Here it is. And so it's pretty presumed like, well, he's only supervising one person or she's supervising one person. It shouldn't be a problem. But it is. If you're not providing them with the tools to do so, then it becomes a problem because any sort of supervision is leadership. Whether it's one person or 20 people, is still leadership. And you have to provide them some sort of tools and how to work and how to interact. But not to mention, is how, do you, how do you plan your day? Because planning a day as a, as a technical worker versus a supervisor is a little different than, than, than each other. So you have to learn how to do that. Uh, there are now trainings exist today. For example, there's one called by, um, you know, I forgot, uh, Fred Pryor. They produce one called Staff to Supervisor. And they kind of take you through the steps to do so. And, of course, there's other ones that do the same thing as well. But that's very important because when you're really starting out somebody at that level, that's really the key time because that person may be the future leader of the organization or at, the, at a different place or even, even the place. I mean, so you really want to make sure that they begin right so they, can, so they can do well in the future. Another point that came up in one of our conversations was there needs to be a track for people who are excellent individual contributors 
but really have no need or want or desire to be a supervisor or a manager, but they feel they have to to continue progressing. Yeah, and I, I think that is a key point. There are a lot of people that basically love what they do. They don't want management positions. And, but, they, but we also have not really created anything, a ladder for them to go forward to, be, to do other things. And that comes down to the creativity of, the, of, the, of basically of the department or even, and also budgetary issues as well. One of the things you want to make, these, these individuals are unique because they love what they do but they're not necessarily want to lead others to do so, and they, and they don't want to teach. They just want to progress in what they do. So as a leader of, of a manager of those individuals, you really want to know, you really want to find out where their, their, their goals are, their future goals. What makes them happy? What makes them tick? And really, you're doing enough not only for better for them, but for you because you want to retain those individuals. You really want to retain them. You don't want them getting bored and then going somewhere else and get it, taking their talent elsewhere. And so one of the things you want to do is challenge them more to do some other things. If they, if they like one technical areas in work, they may like another. And that's something a conversation has to be with each one. And that's kind of individualized, so to speak. Well, we are just about out of time here on, on this, uh, this episode. I want to thank my guest, Sam Alderwell, for sharing his insight. And it, it, it's so critical that you have recognition and inclusion as you're moving forward in your organization as a business or in your personal life or your professional life outside of business, other activities you may have to be into. Sam is an expert at this, and he has given us some just tremendous, tremendous information in this last almost hour here. But we're nearly out of time. Um, one of the things that we always try to end the show is to tell people, no matter what life throws at you, do three things. I want you to look up. I want you to get up. And I never want you to ever, ever give up. You need to pick up the pieces, start moving forward. Better times and better people will enter your life. I guarantee that. If you'd like more information about Sam or his book, please contact me at the Life Altering Event page by pressing email the host, and I will make sure this information gets to him. If you missed any of this show or any of our other shows, they are now available on, on demand, and you can get them on TuneIn, iTunes. Now, recently, was picked up by iHeartRadio. Or you can come to my website at franksakari.com. Let me leave you with this. None of us are in this alone. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Join us again next week as we discuss another life-altering event. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning into Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The Good Cup.